Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And thank you for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is Laura Jean McKay. And this is a fascinating interview. Laura is Australian, is the author of the recent novel, The Animals in That Country, which was the winner of the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and the Victorian Prize for Literature 2021. That's very impressive. This book is mind-blowing. It really is. And it does, you know, if I describe it, which I I don't really need to because we're going to get to the interview in a minute, but it would sound like it's not going to work. I I don't know how she pulled it off, but she really did. It's, It's a little bit... It's a little bit science fiction. It's It's got some really deep characters uh, going through some angsty stuff. And miraculously, even though she started to write it a while ago, it's about a pandemic. It's a mind-blowing book because she really, how can I say this without people thinking it's not going to work? She just, she gets kind of into the minds of the animals, but in a mm-hmm. way that doesn't overdo it. The book is about, you know, what animals are thinking or something, but it does go there and it, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm just rattling along. We'll, we'll just have to wait for the interview because it's so good. And, and I love this book. And she's also your guest on the Flock bonus segment. So people can get even more from your conversation with Laura. Yeah. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to that bonus content in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you're a Flock member, please join us for Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. So if you are a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. So I have been enjoying hanging out in your apartment, partly because it is like the a different, you know, a totally different environment from mine, you know, and that's always better. Like I could grab something from your refrigerator and it's like, what kind of seltzer does Marianne have today? Is it different than mine? Our needs have become so simple. You know, yeah, you used to have, have to go to Paris to get a chain of scenery. Now you go to somebody else's <laughs> house and it's like, wow, upstairs. you have different stuff than I have in your refrigerator. You have the black <laughs> so cherry exciting. seltzer. I have the, so exciting. the lime ginger seltzer. But yeah, someone asked me, what are you doing this weekend? And I thought about it and I said, I'm going to the grocery store. Yeah, and I craziness. meant it. Well, you went to the grocery store recently and you were like, you had kind of a funny vegan experience there. Yeah. Well, the first time I went, I think I talked about this last week. So every week yeah. I'm just going to talk about what happened at the grocery store. Oh. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. So something to look forward to, folks. Uh, the first time I went, it was completely overwhelming. All I got was bananas and broccoli. So then I went again. It was not as crowded. And, you know, I figure I have to get into into like normal life. Uh, I just found it, this is a totally different thing because this wasn't me being overwhelmed by the experience of grocery store. The grocery store has changed uh, since I used to go there. And in fact, I don't know how to feel about this because it has become much more vegan in a lot of ways, but it's much more difficult for a vegan to shop. And it's kind of weird. I don't think they have it all worked out in their heads, but there's this little vegan section where you can get like your your tofurkey sausages and and some kinds of tofu and whatever. But then scattered throughout the supermarket, there's all these other vegan products. Sometimes they're not even marked vegan and uh, sometimes there are things that I haven't heard of before. 
And, and I'm not talking about apples. I'm talking about you know, like real vegan products. A lot of them are being called plant-based. And I found out that the supermarket, just kind of this local, well, it's not local. I think it's, it's in several states. Hannaford's it's cost. They have this new plant-based in-house brand. It's crazy. So it's exactly what we always wanted. It's a lot of vegan products. They're kind of interspersed among the non-vegan products. And yet for the vegans, it was a little hard to find things. Anyway, it's all good news. Well, that's good. Because another thing that was good news was me sitting uh, on your couch eating something out of the jar from your refrigerator while watching a cooking show. That's my favorite way of watching cooking shows is to just eat something that's already prepared. And the show that was on was called The Vegan Corner, and we were watching it on Prime. And I think it had been a YouTube show before it moved to Prime. Yeah, no, I mean, which I guess means it's old news to some of you, but I don't really go on YouTube, you know, like the kids do. <laughs> I'm, I'm more like Amazon Prime, which is pathetic. I, I, I know I am ashamed of myself, I admit it. I'm supporting Amazon, uh, but... The show is so good. I, I really like it. it. And it's very healthy vegan food. And um, it never shows the people, but there is a voiceover and it's very cute and funny and Italian. And not all the food is Italian. So uh, yeah, it was just so exciting to find a vegan show on Amazon Prime. You could also go to theveganecorner.com and you'll see it there. Yeah, 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 I'm sure there's many ways to see it. But, you know, I'm so stupid. I, I, all I do is turn on Amazon Prime. I really got to really mix it up a little bit more. Well, it is, is fun to watch anyway. So I, I like watching cooking shows. It's like I like reading cooking cookbooks, but I don't like making them any right. food. Right, so then just you know, sit there with a bowl of cereal and some soy milk and a, a cookbook. Perfect evening. I thought you were going to say, and soy sauce. And I was like, no, that's mm, disgusting. No, yeah. so, but... Ode to the soy milk. I went this morning, I got a haircut and I also went next door to, to get a coffee. Now that I'm fully vaccinated, I went in to order it and I said, can I have a cappuccino with soy milk? And they said, oh, we only have oat or almond. And it's so funny to me that soy milk has gotten such a bad rap and it's just like boring to people nowadays. Like it's, yeah. e it's easier to find oat milk than soy milk. Like Dunkin' Donuts has oat milk or almond milk, not soy milk. And <laughs> there's just something so funny about it to me. Like I love soy milk. Whatever happened to soy milk love? Why are we Why are we bending over backwards? I know soy milk definitely has become uh, the redheaded stepchild of the vegan milk movement. <laughs> right. I don't know how that happened. I love soy milk too. I think there's lots of great soy milks. Should we have the milk argument? You know, I don't think two so. vegans get together. What do they talk about? Yeah, well, you know, existential despair, which is the next thing on our notes. <laughs> and, and, and soy milk. Either, either which milk do you drink or existential despair. It's kind of the two <laughs> vegan topics. Well, I was, uh, that's so funny. I, you know, I was getting, when I was getting my haircut, I was talking Which to, you did again, which you also did like two weeks ago. So uh, you need to stop soon or you're not going to have any hair left. I'm okay with that. I just need to like make up for my year of home haircuts or non-haircuts at all. But anyway, I was talking to my hairstylist who is, you know, like a lovely human, very social justice oriented. And we were talking about a lot of various you know, happenings in the LGBTQ scene because it's a queer barbershop. And uh, as we were chatting, I, I had a conversation with him that I've had before with other folks who aren't yet vegan, but who are socially justice oriented. And it was like kind of, uh, he told me a story about how someone he, know, someone he knows went vegan 
and then was like kind of yelling at everyone in their life that this, I'm sure that's not how it happened, but this is how, how the story went that this new vegan was like, how dare you eat animals? How dare you eat animals? And my hairstylist was like, but you know, then I was able to explain to him, not everyone can afford it. And I sent him some articles and he thanked me for informing him about this, this other side of it. (laughs) And I was thinking like, oh my God, wrong audience. You know, like, did you, so did you grab the scissors out of his hand and stab him? No, I would not do that. (laughs) But I, uh, I did say, you know, I think when people really learn about the truth about what's going on for animals, it's very, it's very upsetting. Yeah. This is a new tune that we hear played. I hear a lot. Well, I hear it a lot, especially with, as, as I think a lot more people are getting more and more um, activist oriented or social justice oriented, but not necessarily vegan. I mean, certainly that's growing too, but I'm kind of talking right now about people who care passionately and deeply about being part of a better world and creating a better world, but not necessarily about veganism yeah. yet or animal rights. Yeah. Certainly. And I want to, I, I just want to go back a step because I don't want to leave any wrong impressions. Like, I think it's really true that there are many people who live lives that are very difficult and who would find it very difficult to be vegan, mm-hmm. both because of, well, you know, there there is the expense and, you know, we always tend to respond, but, you know, you can definitely eat cheap. But a lot of the, the ways you eat cheap is takes a lot of time and there are a lot of people who don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of time. I am completely uh, like sympathetic to that. I'm not that sympathetic to people who say, well, there are other people who can't be vegan. So what? I won't be vegan in solidarity. Like, is that really the answer here? I mean, shouldn't like a shouldn't you be working in solidarity with them to make it easier for them to be vegan if they want to be and b where'd the animals go? Like, where well, are yes, they? Exactly. I agree. Everything you just said, I agree with. Like, th- I could reiterate it, but you said it very eloquently and, and better than I could. It's true. There, it's it's very frustrating that okay, a that not everyone in the world is vegan, but b we we are used to people backbending to rationalize their behavior. It just seems that the more socially aware, social justice oriented folks are backbending more because they are very justice oriented. So they yeah. kind of have to angrily be defensive about it. And I totally agree with you. I just want to also say, I totally agree with you that there are circumstances absolutely where it is not the first thing on someone's mind to go vegan because they are, they are, their lives might be an emergency. And I am not talking about those people. I'm talking about folks that are able to go vegan and don't because they feel it is elite or, or they feel it is expensive. And, and I'm not dismissing the fact that some vegan food is definitely expensive and I'm not telling people to go shop in the bulk bins. I am, I am recognizing that this is true for some people and that the answer is therefore not to do nothing. And especially for people who could easily go vegan. It's just, it was a, it was a difficult moment and you just hit on something that I'd like to go back to, which is the fact that the animals, in my opinion, actually seem to be in the discussion less and less than they were when I started as an animal activist nearly 20 years ago. And like, I was completely animal motivated. I still am animal motivated. <laughs> That's why I'm vegan for the animals. I am an activist in other realms as well. And obviously it's a different spoke of the same wheel. I'm on the board of the Newark LGBTQ Center. We have, we by the time this airs, we will have just had our virtual gala. I am, I have a book coming out later this year, Anti-Racism and Animal Advocacy. Those are very important issues to me. I do feel like 
there is less and less space to discuss the animals themselves. I struggle with this a lot because I don't want to discuss the animals in a way that dismisses any kind of uh, marginalized uh, communities of, of, of humans either. But I also don't want to take away from the fact that what's going on behind closed doors for animals is abysmal and and a, and a tragedy of monumental proportions and an emergency, not just because of the planet, not just because of the slaughterhouse workers, not just because of insert the blank, but because of the animals themselves. And I don't always know how to go there. So I don't always go there. I really struggle with this. Well, I think that's one of the challenges uh, of, of this particular time we're in for animal activists. We represent the animals and we have to bring them into the conversation and we should bring them in in a way that is authentic and caring of other people and their uh, their problems. But, you know, we can't just pretend that, that that's not one of the big issues and no matter how much people want us to. And, you know, I think one of the reasons people want us to is that there are now other reasons to watch what you eat and to eat less meat. And, and, you know, people are more aware of the health. People are more aware of the environmental issues. People are more aware of the, the, the food scarcity issues. Not that much more aware, but a little bit more aware. So, you know, they can toy with veganism. But the problem is if you're going vegan for the animals, you kind of have to like go the whole, whole hog, so to speak. You should excuse the expression and uh, not eat any of them. And, Though people seem to do that, I think that they just don't think it through carefully. And they know if they go too strong on, you know, caring about animals, that they're not going to be able to eat even one chicken, uh, one little poor baby bird. They're going to have to quit completely and they just can't face that. So I think what you said right at the beginning of the conversation is exactly right. As people are becoming more caring about social justice, and I think we do see that happening, at least a lot of the people you know, who are listening to us at all. The battle to come up with a, a way to avoid thinking about this issue in a way that would require you to stop eating animals gets harder and harder. So the, the arguments get get weirder and weirder and sometimes more and more hostile as as if as if, you know, like we're somehow harming people who who are suffering under under any kind of pressure or prejudice or bias or or whatever, if there's something somehow harming them by caring about the animals too. I think that's always been there, but it's getting stronger. It's hard. It's really hard to come up with reasons why you shouldn't be vegan. Like it's challenging, and yet people manage to do it. I think the answer is uh, to get, I, I keep saying this, but to get it in their hands, whatever it is, the vegan burger, the cruelty-free mascara, get it in their hands. I'm not sure we can always appeal to the consciousness and I'm not sure people will will care about animals. I think some will, but I think ultimately very few. Well, sadly. as I've always said, we tend to think that the the mind the mindset changing comes before the the change in what you eat. And there's a lot of reason to believe that if you change what people eat, their minds will will follow along. So I think that you're exactly right, but I'm not quite as despairing as you that that won't also have an effect on how people care about animals in general, because if you can just get them off the plate and give them delicious food to eat and coax them and control them and, and ease them into the idea that they shouldn't be, that they won't be eating animals, then, you know, there's not 
they like animals. There's no reason for them to not care then. You know who is guilty of this? Which which sin? Just kind of going vegan, but not for the animals specifically. Me. <laughs> I went vegan because I was a longtime vegetarian and I learned about what, what was happening to dairy cows and to egg-laying hens. And I fancied myself a feminist and I worked in LGBTQ stuff and AIDS awareness. And I so I went vegan because I saw what was happening specifically to these reproductive you know, capacities. And I felt it was like the ultimate exploitation of these reproductive capacities. Later, also connecting the dots with the forcible extraction of semen from, from bulls, which is another form of rape. But even the way I contextualized my veganism, and even in the many times I've talked about it, you know, I get people who are nodding and who are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I will sometimes bring up my own experience, you know, being date raped as a young person and, and people nod because so many people have been date raped and, and, and you know, who's missing (laughs) from my story, the animals, you know, it's almost metaphoric in the way that I'm, in the way that I'm describing it. Too. I think you're being too harsh on yourself. Well, I'm, I don't intend to be. Good just, to, always I'm good a, to catch ourselves and make it better. But I think well, you're being a little harsh. I, I think the think, animals have always been front and center for you. And I think they still are. They are. And they have always been. But my point is not to be harsh with myself. But my point is to say that like it is so much easier and so many of us are doing it to put front and center our own stories or how it relates in my case to LGBTQ stuff or to like AIDS awareness stuff instead of just going vegan because of the way they're treated. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. I'm not putting a judgment on it. I'm just saying that what is happening to the animals is an atrocity and I just don't know where they are in the discussion. And I know what you mean. It's like we craft arguments and come up with good good ways to put things. And all you should have to say is, oh my God, look at what we're doing. Well, like you shouldn't that's... have to craft an argument and and find a way in and find a way to get people to, like all you should do is, you know, tell them what's happening. But uh, I guess most of our listeners know, know that. I'm sure a lot of people, because I know so many of you out there are not, you're not just vegan, Though vegan is, you know, hugely what you are, but you're also activists and you're also trying to change people's minds. And I I just wonder whether you're all struggling with this. I just want to say, lastly, that that made me think of the Peter Singer story of no relation to me, that, that he once there was this young guy and it was Peter Singer and he sat across the table from another friend of his and his friend didn't have meat on the plate. And Peter said, I noticed you don't have meat on the plate. Why is that? And his friend said, I'm not comfortable with the way animals are treated. And then Peter said, huh. And then he, you know, wrote animal liberation and and the rest is history. That was it. Like that could actually be it. I am not comfortable with the way they are treated. And obviously the rest of the stuff goes along with it. But at the heart of the matter, there is that too. That is all one should have to say. So, all right, let's, let's, switch gears because your interview with Laura Jean McKay is is super cool and is one of my favorite types of activism, which is uh, creative activism. I know a lot of our listeners love it too. As noted, Laura Jean McKay is the author of The Animals in That Country, which won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and the Victorian Prize for Literature 2021. She is also the author of Holiday in Cambodia and is a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University in Palmerston, New Zealand. 
Laura will be joining Marianne right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Laura. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Thrilled to have you here because I love this book. <laughs> it was tough at times. It's a pretty harrowing book, but it's so unusual and so special when you think about animals really a lot as as most of our listeners do and i honestly don't know how to summarize it or describe it and i don't want to do it unfairly but i think we need to start by giving the listeners a little bit of an idea of what the book is like so we can fit this conversation into it so can i rely on you to do that just tell us about it and i think you said maybe that you had a very short reading that you might want to start off with absolutely so the animals in that country uh, is told through the voice of a woman called Jean. And Jean is a grandma. She loves a drink. She loves a smoke. She loves to drive around. And she works in a wildlife park. And the thing she likes to do there, most of all, is talk to other animals. But um, as it stands, they don't tend to talk back. And that is until a strange new flu, which is something that we're all very familiar with in this country current climate takes over the country and everybody becomes very ill. And one of the side effects of this flu is that people can start to understand what other animals are saying. And as Jean gets sicker, she relies more and more heavily on a dingo called Sue, who has been captive in the wildlife park and then breaks free. And they go on a sort of Thelma and Louise style adventure through the country to try to understand what animals are saying and also to reconnect with their kin, whether they be human or other animal. And that's pretty much my summary. <laughs> and it is as extraordinary as, as it sounds, or perhaps even more extraordinary because of the of the way that you characterize both these humans and these animals. And we're going to get into that more. But first, do you want to, you said that you had a sh very short reading from the, I think from the prologue that might give people also an idea of where we're going? That's right. Uh, yeah, so this is from the very start of the book. I can see the wild in her. She looks and acts like any dog, 
plays, wags, stares into my eyes with her baby browns, does chasey, catch, begs for biscuits. Then the dusk comes and she lifts her neck and howls the saddest song in all the world, and there's that wild, dingo, owl, night thing. That sound is a warning, loneliest you'll hear, wraps around your face, your sleep, your dreams. She's saying, hey, hey, there's something coming. The rangers here are always telling me, don't talk like that. They say how dingoes are just establishing territory, checking on their pack, dingo admin. But stand on the hot road that runs from the gift shop to the enclosures and listen to the dingo in her cage call out to the packs on the other side of the fence. Tell me that's not special. Tell me she doesn't know something about the world that you and me haven't ever thought of. Yeah, that's amazing. And it it just goes from there. But even right in the beginning, before it all happens, you and and Jane, who is a heroine that I just loved, even though she did have her flaws, you're listening. and, And it's really extraordinary. And I'll get into what I thought was so extraordinary about the way that you characterized when these animals could talk. Because, you know, when you must have this problem that it can sound cheesy to people like before they read it before they're familiar with you before they're familiar at serious it can just sound do do people come to it thinking this is going to be stupid well, i think there's been a big change in in reading books about animal communication in the last five years. When I started working on this book, you know, around seven years ago, I would tell people, I was, I'd was i started doing my PhD, my doctorate, and I would say to people, I'm, I'm looking at animal studies, I'm looking at animal communication. My book is about essentially talking animals and people would laugh, you know, or say that's for kids' books or I read a young adult fiction that was like that at some um, at oldest, it would be it would be for young adults. And then in the last few years, there've been a number of books that have emerged that take the idea of our relationship and our communication with other animals very seriously. I'm thinking of books like Alexis Wright, The Swan Book, uh, which is an Australian novel, and A Beautiful Truth by Colin McAdam, and The Octopus and I, Aaron Aaron Hortle. These are all books that are quite recent and all really take very seriously this conversation that we're constantly having with the non-human world, Um, even if it's violent, even if it's problematic, there there is a dialogue happening there. Yeah, and it it is really hard. I I just admire that people are, are starting to tackle that. And I've, you know, I've always thought that Art may be the only way we can really manage to understand animals because science just just isn't enough. I think I read that you went vegan while writing this book, and I definitely want to talk about that. But first, I'm just really curious about what made you write it before you were vegan. Like, was it? Have you always like had a deep fascination with animals? Was it just a whim? Like, where did it come from? <laughs> uh, I grew up in the country in a rural area by the beach and then on on a farm, which was a farm um, which had horses on it, which were trained for racing. And so the animals were just everywhere. They everywhere, you know, there was always a cat 
giving birth in the hallway to kittens or dogs outside or um, in Australia, um, you know, the house was lined with very poisonous redback spiders and the horse, you know, one of the horses would try to get into the house all the time. Um, it was just a very animal, animal-fueled world and that's not to say that it was an animal rightsy sort of world. It was very much sort of a, a working farm but they were always around and my family and especially my mum, I, w- I wouldn't say is an animal lover, but more animal obsessed, is always talking about them and looking at them. So they were always very much mm-hmm. there. But it wasn't until I was an adult and I'd already written my my first book, uh, my short story collection, and I was I was really starting to I'd had this idea that, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we could talk to other animals? And I was living on a writer's residency on the outskirts of Melbourne in Australia. And I was walking along a dark path at night. And I came face to face with a full-sized male adult kangaroo. And for those who haven't met a full-size adult male kangaroo. <laughs> most the, of us probably have not. Most, <laughs> most of you have not. They're, they're the size of you. Um, you know, they're, they're an average mm-hmm. woman's height. So I was staring into the eyes of this absolutely massive creature. Now, I should have been terrified because uh, a male kangaroo by himself has probably been kicked out of what they call his mob, his his pack is probably, you know, hungry and and, and sad. <laughs> and, you know, it, they've been known to attack people. Um, but he should have been even more frightened because in Australia, um, kangaroos get killed. They get killed in a, with a moment's notice. And so we both should have been very scared of each other. But for some reason, we just stared at each other for a moment. And then we did that thing that people do when you're trying to get in a door of a restaurant and you go both go the same way and you're sort of... <laughs> dancing together for a moment <laughs> quite politely and then we found our direction and and wandered off and um and he hung around the house for a few days um eating grass and then and then left and i thought i could i had i just had a really really amazing exchange with a creature from a completely different species now if i had met a strange man on a dark path in the bush at night I would have been absolutely, you know, I would have been absolutely terrified. But with this creature of another species, I felt just a just a friendly exchange. And I thought, if we can have that sort of connection without language, I wonder what would happen if the language barrier was taken away. So that I have, I, I have a lot of respect and thankfulness um, for that incredible meeting. That is an extraordinary story. When you did sit down and attempt to to write the animal speech. I have to say reading it, I found I frequently found it just impossible to understand and didn't know where I was going and then something suddenly would become clear. I think I think the name yesterday at some point I went, "Oh, now I get it." I, was I was was that deliberate mm-hmm. to make it sort of uh difficult or or am I just <laughs> very bright about reading it? <laughs> Because I'm, t- I have to say, it reminded me of poetry, and I'm very bad at reading poetry. I never know what the poem means, and I thought maybe it was me, or maybe you were really trying 
to accomplish exactly that effect. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, I mean, we're we're encountering this animal communication through Jean's eyes. So the story is told in the first person through this human narrator, and so everything is mediated through her. So at first, when she becomes sick, there's just a cacophony of of meaning. There's just words because the the meaning is coming out of all different parts of the animal. They'll the wag of a tail, the stench of glands, the twitch of a whisker. It's all creating meaning. So at first, Jean doesn't understand what what all of this is. And then her granddaughter, uh, Kimberly, says you have to listen. You have to look at the whole animal, not just parts of it. And that was definitely a bit of a dig <laughs> at, at humans. Um, we tend to look at parts of animals um, because of the meat industry, because of all the industries that we we consume them for. You know, we it, it's often beef or pork rather than, you know, this is a pig, this is a cow, this is a, a part of this animal. So Jean needs to step back and take a look at the whole animal. And once she does that, then the meaning starts to become clearer for her and for the reader. Another thing about Jean is that she is a settler colonial white Australian. And so when she's first speaking to Sue, the dingo, she thinks that Sue is calling her queen. It's very imperial. And as she gets to know Sue, she realizes, oh, it's not queen, it's mother. Oh, it's not mother, it's cat dog. Oh, it's not cat dog, it's bitch. <laughs> so um, as she as she gets to know more of the depth of Sue, she realized that realizes that, you know, her her colonization starts to, um, you know, take take a bit of a, a, a sidestep and, and Sue the dingo is prioritised in the text and through the speech. Do you think that the heroine of your of your book is is Jane or Sue? I think it's it's both of them. I mean, I think that Jean is the narrator and Sue is the star, I suppose, is the way I, I see it. Yeah. But they meet um, in a kinship that comes through shared difficulties. Um, Jean is recently divorced. She has a hard time with other people. She's just, she's down on her luck. She's struggling with money. But Sue has had a really hard past as well. And I think that's something that we forget when we're thinking about other animals. Uh, With the character of Sue, she was born into the wild. She was taken with her brothers um, from that wild place and put into an enclosure, a nice enclosure in a wildlife park, but still an enclosure where she's going to be viewed by strangers every single day of her life. She's on show. Um, And so she's constantly trying to battle between that institutionalized life where she's come to rely on being fed and and the, um, her sort of relationship with the people in the park, but also she longs for that wild place as well. So when Sue and Jean come together, they meet in this place of, of shared sort of trauma, I suppose. Um, they're two females of their species who need a friend and they find it in each, in each other. Sort of, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, you sort of alluded to this, but I just really wanted to go into it in more because one of the things that I found so moving was how confused the animals often were and and how limited their knowledge was by by their experiences, which seems obvious when you think about it because we're all limited by our experiences and a lot of their experience has been very curtailed. But but sometimes I think we think of animals as just knowing everything, like, you know, that they know the world and, and they know exactly what they're doing. But so is this something that you thought about of, of how to portray what they knew as, as limited by the, by the lives they had, they had led? 
Yeah, I mean, I think especially in literature and art, <laughs> animals are seen as these prophetic. They're either seen as cute and stuttery and stumbly or very prophetic or poetic that they are here in this world to tell humans great truths about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, of course they're not. Of course they're not here for us. They have their own lives uh, that they're living out. And sometimes we get in the way and very much, you know, prevent those lives from from happening, um, you know, usually purposefully. So it, it was really important to me. I didn't I didn't worry so much about anthropomorphism because I think anthropomorphism, or this is what I came to after a few years of worrying about it, that's just our basic human, limited, as you say, human way of trying to understand other animals. We, We don't you know, we're not very bright. We can see that from the way we treat the world. So, you know, we, we just sort of place our own feelings onto animals because, you know, that's what we have at hand. And also with animals, um, you know, they're, they're just doing their thing and they're not, they're not focused on us. They're, so I guess what you're saying is the limits of their understanding is just them trying to get along in the world and, and um, you know, we're often stopping them from fulfilling that. Yeah, and they live the lives they they live, and they don't know. Yeah, as you said, they're not great prophets or, or yeah, all knowing creatures, and they don't know everything about nature. They're just living their lives. That really came across to me. I think the place it came across the most was the story. It wasn't a big story, but it really struck me deeply. the The pigs that Jane met on the road. Can you just tell a little bit about that story? Yeah. The pigs who had gotten out of the truck? Absolutely. So um, Jean and Sue are on their road trip, uh, traveling south to try and find Jean's kin. And they they come to a roadblock. It's a it's a truck that has held pigs that have are being taken from the farm to slaughter. And the people who were driving the truck are out on the road arguing and they're saying, you know, I'm not getting back into that truck. You can't make me, you know, you know, I'm I'm leaving. And Jean sort of says, what's going on? And, and they say the pigs keep calling hello from the back. So they're driving this truck along the road to take these pigs away and they can hear them talking from the back of the truck um, or they can, you know, they can understand the, the communication. And Jean decides to let these pigs out and so she can move the truck and get on with her journey. And the pigs, they're calling out, as they go down the ramp, they're calling out for more, more. And um, she realises that they have hope, even though they're these, um, you know, factory farmed pigs, they they have infections, some of them can hardly walk, some of them have never seen, you know, they've never seen mud or grass before. Um, they're looking at it for the first time and they're feeling very hopeful. And that really came from, I would do this sort of intensive research into animals and, and you know, all the sort of different scientific literature that would come out. And, and I would do it very haphazardly, <laughs> you know, once I, <laughs> once I would find an idea, um, you know, I would sort of seize on it. And I read something about, about pigs having great curiosity and being able to sort of hope for the future. Um, and I thought, wow, a pig, a pig must be, I think um, the philosopher um, Val Plumwood says in her great article, Babe, the tale of the speaking pig. If anyone hasn't read that, it's it's absolutely brilliant. It's looking at the movie Babe. I think she says, uh, I'm paraphrasing. You know, pigs are the most maligned animal in our society. A factory pig is 
is so poorly treated, possibly um, one of the most of all of the factory farmed animals. And I thought, wow, if an animal like that, if studies have shown that an animal like that can have hope, you know, that's extraordinary. I want to, I want to try to imagine what what a pig like that might have to say about seeing mud and and grass and and the things that that pigs are generally known to be quite into. <laughs> what would that be like um, seeing that for the first time? Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. It really was, and and yeah, a sort of optimism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did come through in spite of that you weren't cheating on talking about how how awful it was and and their condition they were in, but. It was very moving. And you mentioned before that, that the, it's about a flu. And it's pretty crazy that you decided a few years ago to write about a pandemic. <laughs> like, I, I don't I know, know what's going on there. But th- did this affect how the book was received? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it really did. Uh, I mean, oh, it was so. Do you confusing. feel that you're controlling the universe in some way? <laughs> <laughs> someone, uh, someone asked me in a Q and A, and one of the audience members said, "How did you know that the pandemic was coming?" And I had to, <laughs> I had to break it to them. No, it was really. I mean, it was really a plot device. I needed. I wanted humans to be able to understand what other animals were saying and I needed a lot of them to be able to do that at once. And I'd worked in aid work and I knew the basic uh, trajectory of pandemics. And so um, that was what I chose. But also at the same time, I mean, I was... I was starting to write this, you know, this sort of story in 2013. So it was quite <laughs> quite a while ago that I was thinking about, about pandemic as it played out in the story, around the same time I had been bitten by a mosquito in Bali, which gave me a disease called chikungunya, which is like dengue. It's not as deadly, but it really ravaged my body. I became very ill with fever. I turned bright red. My skin started peeling off. And I genuinely thought in my delirium, that I was turning into a mosquito. So I was sort of, I was sharing this amazing experience in a way with with quite a powerful animal, the mosquito. And so at the same time as I was experiencing this illness, the, the book sort of became ill as well. And this pandemic theme started developing. And so in a way it was easier, though it was very hard to write through the illness. It was it was easier to imagine how the characters might be experiencing this. But then, you know, flash forward to 2020. The book is about to come out as I'm doing the final edits on scenes where people are looting shops and wearing masks and isolating and um, the news is very confusing and governments are, are making poor decisions. These scenes were playing out in the media and it was so it was so awful because, you know, here I had imagined this pandemic into my novel and then people all over the world were genuinely really suffering horribly and I I was so worried (laughs) for everyone and um, yeah I was worried that I wouldn't have done justice to to the idea of pandemic at the time. Uh, I don't think it was something to worry about because you certainly portrayed it in a way that was I mean obviously it was a different disease but it was very harrowing and you didn't take it lightly and and I thought it was wonderful to read something about like somebody's imagination or perhaps it was even a fever dream (laughs) that's the way you're describing it about how this would be Mm. and while you're actually experiencing uh, I thought it gave the book even though it wasn't specifically about the animal issues which is the part that you know really really deeply affected me I thought it gave the book like a, a depth that you know there's just no way you could have created 
like to, to have somebody creating a fictional version of what we were all actually experiencing. It was brilliant. I think you should try to predict the future in all of your novels, though I think the next one should have a nice, happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, make, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> Just in case you actually are controlling the universe, write something nice. <laughs> into global poli- global poverty and but ine- global poverty and inequality i'll i'll pop that in <laughs> okay but fix it before the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that that uh you were worried about being anthropomorphic and i don't see how you could not because that's what you know everybody is accused of whoever thinks about what an animal's inner life might be but at the same time was it a worry? Did did you feel presumptuous representing animals in our lives? Yeah, uh, I wrote, I rewrote this novel about three times completely, and one of those versions I showed to my partner, who's who's the author Tom Doig, and he said, um, you know, this is this novel about talking animals is great, except that you haven't got any talking animals in it. <laughs> And so, in my horror of anthropomorphism, I uh, I had I had avoided. I, I was just I was just really worried about representation. Yeah. But then, um, you know, I, I looked to a lot of people who had been writing about this subject and thinking about this subject for a long time, and I read something that Jane Goodall said about um, first encountering and writing about chimpanzees in the in the jungles of of Tanzania. And she said that she wrote about how these animals were um, feeling and what they were doing, and and she she gave names. And the scientific community absolutely bagged her. I mean, they they hounded her and said that what she was doing was wrong, and you know you shouldn't you shouldn't place these um, feelings. You know, first of all, these animals can't possibly have these feelings, and secondly, we shouldn't be you know, putting these these emotions onto other animals. The thing is, in our horror of anthropomorphism, we forget that that is the least we would ever do. If you anthropomorphize your cat, say, oh, look, um, you know, pussycat's looking, looking grumpy today. That's not harming the cat. The cat doesn't, doesn't worry about that. But if you, you know, treat your cat you know, badly, which uh, I guess what I'm saying is what we do as humans to other animals, we don't need to worry about anthropomorphism. We, there's a lot of other things. If we fix everything else, the violence, you know, our, our use of them um, for our consumption, a general ravaging of the world, maybe then we could start to worry about anthropomorphism. But at the moment, I think we've got bigger things to think about. Well, yeah, that's really well said. It's hardly the worst thing we do to them. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote down this quote. For, are you familiar with Martha Nussbaum? She's an American philosopher. No. And she has this lovely quote. Well, I'll see if you think it's lovely. I, I wrote it down because I, I, it was nagging at me as I was reading the book. She says, all human descriptions of animal behavior are in human language, mediated by human experience. As Peter Singer has noted, there is a real risk of getting things wrong through anthropomorphic projection. But we should remind ourselves that the same problems vex our human relationships. All of our ethical life involves, in this sense, an element of projection, a going beyond the facts as they are given. It does not seem impossible for the sympathetic imagination to cross the species barrier. I love that term, the sympathetic imagination. I think that I, I, I feel like that comes from um, Kutzea, the Elizabeth Costello, or the Lives of Animals. It's a really, it's a really nice way to understand why we anthropomorphize and why maybe it's it's not 
such a problem because it's just part of our relationship. And it really is the best we can do. Mm. I mean, we're limited. And <laughs> so right. rather than imagine there's nothing going on, we might as well make our best uh, best estimates as long as we are using, as you say, a sympathetic imagination. I really felt that that's what you were doing in this book. And, oh, thank you. And it's tough. I mean, as we've seen, there's there's a lot of fiction as we were talking before, it, it's not, and it's not exclusively children's fiction, though there's a lot of it that has animal characters. And, you know, who they're usually kind of furry humans. And I think it's really important for fiction to understand and can try to convey animals' lives, even though it's impossible to do. Absolutely. And what I came to was that it's not anthropomorphism that's the problem, but anthropocentrism, which is the centering centering of humans um, in everything. You know, how can we, and that was what I was trying to do in the animals in that country, try to de-center the human character increasingly as the novel goes on and center the star of the show, (laughs) which is Sue. Yeah, I think that's why I, I was asking you who who did you consider the main character, mm. and because it does sort of shift to some extent. That's right. And the animals' attitudes towards humans are primarily hate and fear, uh, which you know I think the listeners of this podcast would think that would be obvious. <laughs> like, why why would they feel any other way? For for you, is that the way you? Uh, you said you grew up with animals, and you probably had some good relationships with animals, but. Is that what you assume is the attitude of most animals towards humans? Yeah, I came to a realization as I was writing the book. I thought about when I go for a bushwalk, especially in Australia, as you go along, you're always listening out for other animals. You're listening for an echidna, which um, has a certain sound. You're listening from, for the uh, the thump of a wallaby or a kangaroo. You're listening out for snakes always <laughs> and for birds. And, um, you know, it's usual that you would, you would encounter one of those animals uh, on a bushwalk in Australia. What I realized as I was staring one day at a rock wallaby, which is sort of a, a short kangaroo <laughs> type creature, was that I was, you know, this was my moment. I was like, yes, I saw one of the animals, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stare at it in wonder. And, you know, isn't this an exciting moment for me? What I realized was that that rock wallaby in that moment was fear, fearing for their life and not just their own life, but because they were the ones closest to me, they were the scout. They were probably the male who was kept on lookout. They were fearing for their lives and for the life of their whole mob. So for me, it was a moment of joy and wonder. For the other animal, it is always a moment of absolute vulnerability and I assume fear. And that's our encounter very likely with every wild animal we meet. And then, so then you start to think, well, what what does that mean in terms of, you know, the cows I pass in the fields every day um, on my way to work or, um, you know, the dog that I meet? What what does that encounter mean for, for all of the animals in our lives? Is this what you do all the time now? Yes. Or maybe you always did it? Like- <laughs> yes. <laughs> I stare at them and wonder. So sometimes I'm often late for work because my path here, here in New Zealand, it's very dairy, dairy inten- intensive. Um, they've gone from sheep to cows, really. And oh, I, I, on my cycle to work, I pass these cows going through various stages of, of sort of process. So there's the, the baby cows that you know have been taken away from their from their mothers, and they're all there huddled together. And then there's often sort of the teenage cows, I suppose. I, I'm not sure what the correct terms are. And then there's the older cows, and then there's a, a section for cows that are being experimented on. Like I can see 
the patches on their bodies where they're being experimented. So it's a weird sort of cross-section of of cow lives in the, you know, animal industrial complex. And that's it's always it always strikes me every day. Um, so I'm often late to work because I often stop and, and talk to the cows. <laughs> Yeah. No, I, 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 you may sound, you sound a little chagrined, but I think probably everybody listening to this is, is stuck in that same uh, difficult place, which we wouldn't leave, but seeing the world for the way it really is when it comes to animals yeah. is a tough place to, to, uh, to live. So that brings us to the vegan question. Can you kind of describe that trajectory and how writing the book entered into it and pushed your thinking along? Yeah, so for for most of my adult life, I'd been sort of—they call it pescatarian. So I was eating fish and and vegetables. So I was a meat eater, but I limited it to fish. And then I moved into meat eating in my early thirties. I'm not entirely sure why. I just did. And then so I was I was um, I was started writing this book, and in a way, I started sort of practicing veganism theoretically um, for quite a long time before I actually sort of put that into practice in my life. Um, I was I was reading a lot of critical animal studies literature. I was watching a lot of the awful videos um, that, that show about intensive farming. And I was also very sick at that time. I had, th- I had that disease, that chikungunya disease, and I also had developed con- chronic migraines yeah, I guess I was it was I was sort of thinking a lot about bodies. I was thinking a lot about my body and I was thinking a lot about animal bodies. And you know, at, at one point I went to Britain and I w- I did a workshop with the great, wonderful philosopher Erica Fudge who said and I'm paraphrasing her something like we don't eat our subjects. <laughs> so she was you know, she was basically saying if you're writing about animals you know how can you eat them? It's 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 pretty perverse, and it got to the point where I just I just didn't want to anymore. I, I you know there's no just there was no justification. I was studying uh, animal studies. I was around animal studies scholars who were vegan. I was going to conferences and looking down at what I was wearing and thinking, oh my god, I'm wearing leather shoes a silk shirt and a feather jacket, you know, this is this yeah. is really disturbing and it must be disturbing. I was very aware of the other people that I was sitting next to, you know, how disturbing that must be for them, let alone the animals um, that these items had come from. And, yeah, there was just no excuse anymore. It was, in a way, I was still, I mean, by that stage I'd, I'd become vegetarian and I was allergic to dairy anyway. So I was basically eating eggs. That was my last thing. And, um, it was just, it was just ridiculous that I was still doing it. It was almost a social thing. I was worried because people become so hysterical about veganism in a, in a way that's, you know, really seems quite ridiculous. Really? Yeah. I mean, I feel like (laughs) I I, I was kidding. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I feel like I heard a a vegan said to me once, um, you know, meat eaters hate vegans and vegetarians hate vegans, but no one hates vegans like vegans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, because, because it can get quite, quite passionate even in the vegan community but um so when I was when I first became vegan you know it was it was really it was a real joy and uh and it opened up a lot for me because I was writing this novel and then I was you know I 
I'd stopped eating meat and consuming animal products. But I also kept it very quiet for about six months. It was very private. I just wanted it to be for me and I wanted it to be a joy. I didn't want to have those conversations with people where, you know, they were like, oh, well, what about insects? You know, what about when you're walking along? And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I know the question she means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kept it very private. And so that was a really lovely time. It was, and it comes along with a period of great health for me. Not, not actually because of veganism. It was just the time when I sort of recovered from various illnesses somewhat. And so I always remember it as a very happy time and that's continued. <laughs> oh, it's such a lovely story, but it's also so frustrating that we don't, why don't we do it sooner? I don't know. Like, yeah. like I think that almost everybody who's vegan just thinks, why did I wait? It, it's so good. It's yeah. just so frustrating that we have so many, so many reasons not to. Well, there's so much stigma around it, I think. And, uh, and because, yeah, I think there's just a lot of stigma. Well, I'm really glad you did. And I'm really glad you wrote this book. Do you feel like, was it in the process of writing this book? And do you feel like it changed your attitude towards the book? Shits the characters at all? Yeah, I think it just, I think it just made everything make more sense. I mean, it just didn't make any sense to be writing this passionately about other animals and then consuming them in any way. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it actually, I mean, Jean, the main character, she, you know, she continues to eat meat throughout the novel. Um, she doesn't change. And that was sort of a very, a very, you know, um, it was a conscious decision. Uh, it Total. I think it was exactly the right decision. Yeah. That would not have felt like her. No, no. It, it really, it, that would have been me, not her. <laughs> but, yeah, and it would have felt didactic. But, I, I, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I, I was not expecting that, and or nor was I disappointed. Mm. I mean, I would have been disappointed if she was a real person. <laughs> She's fictional. Yeah. She doesn't have to be vegan. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so I, I just think it, it it was more of a personal decision. I mean, the book was 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 trucking along and being the book it was, and there were a lot of things to explore. And I'd already done a lot of research, you know, into the uh, philosophy around it, and and really decided on how the characters were going to go. So this was more of a a personal journey to sort of um, walk the talk, really. <laughs> well, I do love that they they went together, hmm. even if even if not so strongly influenced. I, I, and I, I'm just going to say, I don't even know whether I should say this because maybe it's a spoiler. I don't know. But the end made me cry. And I'm really not a crier lawyer. So uh, it really, I felt a palpable loss at the end of the book. And I don't want anybody to interpret what that means about what the end of the book is. But uh, but uh, if there's anything you want to say about it, that's fine. But I just wanted you to know that um, I don't often cry at at books and I did. I'm, I'm both yeah. sorry and happy <laughs> that that happened to you. And I have to say it made me cry a few times, which is quite weird. You don't usually sort of, <laughs> you're not supposed to be affected by your own writing in that way. I think um, I won't, I won't sort of describe what the ending is, but I will say that when I'm writing, I get a really clear image in my head at the very beginning of the whole process. And it's my job to fulfill <laughs> that moment, to get to that moment. And that end scene was with me for, I'd say, around 10 years. That was the moment that I was always trying to get to. So I, I think my bursting into tears was when I'd finally made the rest of the novel <laughs> lead up to that point when I'd finally mm -hmm. realized it. Um, so yeah, it, it was a very, it was a very, very strong image for me. And, and people, 
people have definite opinions about the ending. It would be it would be great to hear from different people who are listening if if they if they read the book, um, you know, what they thought of the ending once they get through it. Well, how can people reach you or find out more about your work? Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm on Twitter if people are there. I like Twitter for its bookishness, and uh, I can. I'm also um, published through Scribe US, who are fantastic. So yeah, and and I have a website if you wanted to drop me a line through the contact form there. That's great. Thank you so much for for talking to us today. It's it's really been a joy, and as was the book. I'm really excited we managed to put it together. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be on this program. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Anxieties are rising. My first story is from the center of my plate column on meetingplace.com. And it's by Lisa Keep, And I love it. You're going to love it too. Are you fighting the last war or the current one? She asks in her title. She starts out talking about the Maginot Line and how before World War II, France was busy preparing for World War I type of fighting. Well, uh, that's not what they were about to meet. And then she quickly transitions to talking about some of the recent law cases uh, involving meat labeling of meat, meat analog or uh, plant-based products that are meant to you know, reiterate meat in some way and how, you know, the the industry has had some successes and really not as big successes as, as they like to characterize them. But then, in case you're worried that I'm going to go into that in depth, she goes on to say, in 2021, however, the battlefield is somewhere else entirely. She talks to about a study which, when comparing nutrition facts labels, 45% of respondents believed the plant alternative was healthier than animal meat. And in other words, as she points out, alt meats are winning the communications battle in consumers' minds. While the conventional meat industry supporters fight to keep, quote, meat-related language off of alt meat labels in the U.S. and elsewhere, highlighting the plant in plant-based has proven to be a powerful selling point for their perceived rivals. So as she's pointing out, this whole fight over whether you can call it call it hot dogs or, or burgers or whatever is just totally beside the point. And she's so right. She's so right. As she points out, even the attempts by Good Food Institute and Tuferky to raise their First Amendment rights to, to use these words and the fact that Impossible Foods just kicked off a national advertising campaign with the tagline, we are meat, which, as she points out, incensed meat industry pros. As she points out, these objections are already misdirected. The field of battle is somewhere else entirely. I love this article. And I it's totally true. And I think I was talking about this earlier in the episode that when uh, I go to the grocery store, it's all of a sudden they're, they're like touting plant-based on everything, like plant-based this, plant-based that. You know, obviously they consider a selling point and obviously they have the money to do all the research on figuring out what our selling points and people, it turns out, 
like to eat plants as long as they taste like meat. <laughs> so interesting. Oh, my God. This is I, I find that very, very exciting article. All right. Sort of in the same. Uh, well, not exactly the same mode. Another article from Meeting Place. Should the Green Bay Packers change their name? Now, this is by Sean Stevens in the Legally Speaking column. And I have to say, it never occurred. I, I never knew what the Green Bay Packers were named for, but it turns out they were named for a meatpacking company, which they started out as kind of a, a little football team with, you know, a sponsorship by a local company. And it was a meatpacking company. And they have since been known as the Green Bay Packers as they turned into a very large and important uh, football franchise. And what Sean is worrying about is that are we going to have to change their name because political correctness is starting to influence even his words? In most cases, I explained to my neighbor who was asking him what kind of work he does. The cattle are born, raised caringly, provided healthy grass-fed diets, transported carefully to establishments supervised by highly trained and compassionate government inspectors, harvested humanely, handcrafted, and placed nicely into their final biodegradable packaging. Is that really what he said during this conversation? Because I think his neighbor must have thought he was a lunatic. And so he's saying, you know, all right, we're, we're getting more and more in avoiding using the uncomfortable terms such as slaughter. And so he's wondering, should the Green Bay Packers ever consider changing their name to be more politically correct? Maybe, he points out, someday in the future, the Green Bay plant-based beef alternative handcrafters would be a more appealing title to some. Ha, 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 ha. So funny. And then he goes on, of course, to say, let's hope never. But in this new and evolving area of political correctness, the conversation sure makes interesting food for thought. One thing that I thought was very interesting here is that he's not talking about political correctness. Political correctness is like worrying about, and if you're using the term political correctness, you would be thinking overly worrying, being too concerned with hurting the feelings of, of, of somebody and so avoiding using certain terms. What we're talking about here in his article is lying. It's like a different thing. It's not uh, lying doesn't you don't lie to be politically correct. You just avoid saying things or say them in a nicer way. But uh, saying that uh, government inspectors are compassionate, saying that the animals are raised caringly. This is not politically correct language. This is not avoiding uncomfortable truths. This is this is what we know have known as lying. Yeah. So interesting. Right. And he's the lawyer. Another article from meetingplace.com. And, you know, I know I'm getting them all from the same source, but they're all just their anxieties are all rising. Beef is just dead meat. You're going to love this one, too. This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. And he starts off talking about chicken and how since 1976 about chicken has just begun to take over from from beef consumers and beef is constantly lost out to chicken. And he has his, his theories about reasons like, and who really cares? I, like the chicken's branded better or something. But this is the part that I like. This is the frightening part for the entire animal and agriculture industry, he says. Alternative plant-based proteins have come to market and are succeeding. If growth of plant-based, quote unquote, meats continues as is forecast, the beef industry as we know it is dead. Yeah, that's what he said. Imagine, if you will, a scenario in which plant-based faux meat sales force the replacement of only 20% of the beef industry infrastructure. Now, I would say that that's a not an unrealistic scenario. What he means is that 
that would mean that there was a need for 20% fewer cattle ranches, grazing allocations, feedlots, processing, processing facilities, employment. And he calls that a death spiral for the beef industry because he doesn't think the processors will just let their, their plants, which they've you know, call their factories, uh, which is just as usual. So watch their plants be underutilized. Of course, they're not. What they're going to do if if beef consumption go down is replace those beef processing capabilities to, quote unquote, plant based meat production. And as he points out, we're already seeing that, quote, witness the purchase of or internal development of plant based proteins by the major animal agriculture companies. These, quote, for-profit entities have little infinity for the heritage of cattle ranching when it jeopardizes their profits. Uh, yeah, because the reason you should be in cattle ranching or in slaughterhouses is for the, for the history and the beauty of it, not for the money. Oh, my God. But, you know, this is, this is just so good. So good. So much good stuff today. You know, you got to read the meat industry sites. That's where you hear all the good news because um, they're a wreck. They really are. All right. Just finally, just to show what they will do in order to allay their anxieties, there's this uh, article from Inside Climate News. Big meat and dairy companies have spent millions lobbying against climate action, a new study finds. Now, this is something, I guess, that we have at least suspected, if not kind of known, happens because they're enormous lobbyists. But it's nice to have this research from New York University Confirming it, you know, with with cold, hard facts, as the article starts off, top U.S. meat and dairy companies, along with livestock and agricultural lobbying groups, have spent millions campaigning against climate action and sowing doubt about the links between animal agriculture and climate change. Well, since I have read most of those articles, like they sure have. Well, I, of course, haven't gotten lobbied (laughs) or gotten paid off, but, but I have read a lot of their articles and they're nonsensical. As they point out, even the ones that have committed to going, quote unquote, net zero or whatever, uh, you know, it's not entirely clear what they usually mean by zero, which is always a problem. These commitments, the authors say, are short on specifics or focus on carbon dioxide reductions, while the bulk of emissions from animal agriculture comes from methane and especially potent greenhouse gas. I wonder who they think they're going to sell their meat to when we're all like underwater or or dead from climate change. I guess they just don't really think ahead. The article goes on to describe the survey as calculating, quote, that U.S. agribusiness, which includes meat and dairy companies and also other agricultural companies, spent $750 million on national political candidates from 2000 to 2020. The U.S. energy sector, by comparison, spent $1 billion. And those um, numbers are pretty far apart, but it's still pretty shocking, $750 million, but that buys a lot of laws. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. 
I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.